Good morning, church. I trust that you are doing well and that you are settled in for these uh, new restrictions we are facing here in Manitoba over the next few weeks. Now, please know that we are with you in this, that we're praying for you, and please do not hesitate. If there is anything that we can do to come alongside you during this season, do not hesitate to reach out, to, to contact the church via email or phone. But uh, we want you to know you're not alone and we are here for you in whatever capacity we can be. Now, as we have been uh, over the past couple of months, we're going to open our Bibles together this morning into the book of 1 John as we continue to see what it looks like to live as a community that is set apart. So would you open your Bibles along with me to our text today, uh, 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. 1 John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Let's read this. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would teach us and challenge us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as with everything we have been reading in 1 John, this text is jam-packed uh, with theological truth and pastoral encouragement. Much of what we have already spent time looking at, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist, the centrality of Christology to truth, among other things. But what I want us to spend our time focused on this morning is a significant dichotomy that John and the elders pose in our passage today. And that is the contrast between that which is of God, or from God in the NIV, and that which is of the world, or from the world. If you don't already have those two uh, contradictions bouncing around in your heads from reading our text, let me point out that, that the statements of God and the world are repeated six times each in the six short verses that we just read. Listen again to our passage, and I'll add intentional emphasis. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many pro false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even already in the world. 
You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore they speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Okay, did you catch it that time? There are two distinct realities when it comes to the origin and ownership of ideas, philosophies, worldview, and truth. And our text labels these opposing realities as worldly and godly. There is all around us that which is right or from God and that which is not or that which is from the world. And this text... Well, in fact, the entire letter, if you were to read it with this lens on, emphasizes that these are mutually exclusive realities, sides, or origins, right? Quite clearly, our text asserts that to be from God is not to be of the world. In the same way that we realized a couple of weeks ago that a branch cannot be attached to two different trees, we cannot be both of God and of the world. You can't wear the jersey of both teams and play in opposite directions. Or as Matthew 6.24 reminds us, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what our text assumes about those who are reading the letter is that as verse 6 says, we are from God. Which simultaneously means that we are not of the world. You can only serve one master, play for one team, believe one spirit, and we must reject the others. Consider some other New Testament passages that assert this as well. Romans 12, 12 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. James 1, 27 says, Religion that our God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. John 15, 19, If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Or earlier on in the letter we're studying, 1 John 2, 15 to 16. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Right? From these passages and others, we see that there's a significant biblical separation presented between the ways of God and the ways of the world and the importance of living on the right side of that equation. But here's the challenge. Here is where things get complicated. You see, the same Bible that says we are to be uh, distinct and separate from the world also tells us that God so loved the world, John three sixteen, and that's the same word in the Greek, 
that he died for it and came to save it, John 12, 47, and that we, his followers, are to love our neighbors in the world as the good Samaritan did, Luke 10, 25, to love our enemies and pray for those who curse us, Matthew 5, 44, and to spend our lives bringing the message of Christ's salvation to the ends of the earth, Acts 1, 8, to all nations of the world, Matthew 28, 19. So what do we do with this? How do we live within the tension of loving and being repelled from the world, especially in light of the fact that the world is our environment, whether we like it or not? Now, if you have been in Christian circles for long, you have likely heard an expression that tries to reconcile this concept. And the expression is, Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. Have you heard that before? That, that while we cannot change our location, it's inevitable that we're in the world. We are not to be of the world or from the world, as our text says. And, and I think, in concept, this is a decent quote. But my suggestion is that this expression does not quite do the biblical tension justice. You see, while it is certainly true that we are indeed in the world and that the world is not where our allegiances lie, that we're to be distinct from the ways of the world, this quote gives us no practical help to navigate itself or to help us understand what it means to live this sentiment out. And so what we usually see are two extremes when it comes to how Christians try to put this into practice, in the world but not of the world. The first example is that we can tend to emphasize the in the world aspect of the statement. And this leads some to embrace the world and all that's in it. Shrugging their shoulders saying, sure, this isn't who I am, but this is the world that God's placed me into. And so I'll immerse myself in it, live within it, even look like it so that I can be Christ within it. I'll blend in. By putting on the world's jersey, but I'll know that I'm still playing for Christ's team. And we sort of cozy up to the world while we wait for Christ's return, enjoying what the world has to offer, even putting value in what the world values. Right? It's almost like a when in Rome situation where we do as the world does until God takes us home where we can really then be who he wants us to be. But this just doesn't seem to line up with the passages of Scripture, like the ones that we read today, that encourage us right now to live as people of God and not that of the world. On the other hand, the second tendency is the opposite, where we give ourselves permission to cut ourselves off from the world isolating ourselves, creating our own Christian subcultures, which ironically mostly mirror the world's values, just maybe with a little less swearing. And we can find ourselves, in a sense, hiding out until Christ returns, all the while declaring, this is not our home, or we do not belong here, which again seems to miss what the Bible teaches, encouraging Christians to shine the light of Christ into the dark corners of the world, not to colonize and keep the light to ourselves until this world ultimately gets what's coming to it. Right? You can see the danger, can't you, in the pendulum swing 
to one side or the other. We are not to isolate from the world, nor are we to embrace it. And while these responses may be based on a sincere desire to do what Christ intends for us and to reconcile how we can be in the world and not of the world, they do not reflect the biblical balance presented in the scriptures, nor do they emphasize the purpose of all of it. So what I would like to do is to present a slight adjustment to the statement in the world, but not of the world, so that we can be better equipped to live this out. And the text that I want us to travel to to help us make this adjustment is the same text that our letter is likely pointing its readers to consider as well. Do you remember uh, last week or a few weeks back, we talked about how this letter, the book of 1 John, assumed a knowledge of John's gospel, right? And often expanded on the teaching of Christ from the gospel of John, presuming that the readers were already aware of the original. Well, that is the case for this morning's text as well. There's a very famous uh, text in the gospel of John referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Now, this uh, high priestly prayer is Jesus' farewell discourse at the end of the Last Supper, the last words that Jesus shares with his disciples prior to his being arrested and subsequently crucified. Now, during this prayer, Jesus prays three things. He, first of all, prays for himself, that he would be glorified through his upcoming death and resurrection. Next, he prays for his disciples, that God would protect them, fill them with joy, and sanctify them. And third, he prays for all believers, everyone who will come to believe in his name, that we would be unified or, and, and that we would be catalysts of Christ's love and ultimately one day we'll be with Christ in the end. It, it really is a, a beautiful prayer and it's really special to read the words that Christ prayed for us, that Christ prayed for you and for me. So I encourage you to read through it this week and, and picture Christ praying these words, the words of John 17, 6 to 26, over you. Now, the reason we're looking at this farewell discourse or Jesus' high priestly prayer is that our text today in 1 John 4 is leaning on the very language that Jesus used in John 17 in his prayer. In, in fact, uh, 1 John 4 has been said by some scholars to be a relative mirror of the John 17 text. So when 1 John intentionally repeats, as it does in our passage, from God, from God, from God, the world, in the world, in the world, it is the text of John 17 that would be bouncing around in the ears of its original audience. And as it pertains to the idea of how we live in the world, John 17 is the most explicit account out of which the statement in the world but not of the world likely comes from. So Let's listen to a few of Jesus' words in this prayer, starting at John 17, verse 13. It says this, I, Jesus, am coming to you, the Father, now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they, my disciples, may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. 
My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Okay. Now, again, this discourse is a lot longer than just these verses, but did you hear the language we've been pondering this morning? Verse 14, right? For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Verse 15, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Now, based on these words of Jesus, I believe that a much more helpful distinction for us as we consider how to live in a world that we're not of is this. Christians are sent into the world, but are set apart from the world. Let me say that again. Christians are sent into the world, but are set apart from the world. So let's explore these two statements in further detail. First, Christians are sent into the world. Christians are sent into the world. As verse 18 says, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Church, this is so important to understand when we consider our place in the world. It is not simply that we are in the world as if it's inconsequential or unintentional. Like it it just happens to be the place that we find ourselves. Like someone would say they're in high school or in prison, which I know for some feels like the same thing. But, But church, we do not just happen to be here. We are sent into the world, as we read in verse 18. We have a purpose, a mission, a reason for being here in the same way that Christ had a purpose for his time on the earth. Just look at verse 18 again. Just as Christ was sent, so are we. Church, we cannot miss this truth that we are sent. And until we get this, until we understand that we're not meant to quarantine ourselves from culture, we will never fulfill the calling that Christ has put on our lives. This world is not simply a necessary evil that we need to wait out or survive. It is a mission field that we have been called to give our lives to. Let me say that again. This world is not simply a necessary evil that we need to wait out or survive. It's a mission field that we have been called to give our lives to. As Jesus says in Matthew 9, 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I anticipate that the workers are few in part because many don't acknowledge that work needs to be done and that we have all been called into the harvest. We have been sent 
intentionally to a world that desperately needs the love of Christ. And when we understand this, that we're not simply in the world, but are sent to the world, it changes everything for us. First of all, it changes the way we see the lost, right? When we acknowledge that we are sent, the people we see around us are not rivals anymore. The people who don't agree with us are not our enemies, but are in desperate need of the grace and love of God just as we are. They are not to be avoided, but are to be pursued. Our attitude should be like our fathers, as outlined in 1 Timothy 2.4, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The second thing that knowing we are sent, not just in, but we're sent, changes is the way we spend our lives. Right? The way we spend our lives. What we do with our time. What we give our days to ought to change if we know that Christ has sent us with a purpose, that we have a job to do at the request of our king. And that job is not to huddle up and wait out the storm. In, in the same way that the task of a teacher is to educate children and not simply hang out in the teacher's lounge with other teachers until the day is over, the church is sent, not simply to hide out in our churches, avoiding the ones we are sent to reach, but to engage with those who need to be educated about the glorious truth of Christ's salvation. There are people, church, all around us who desperately need to hear the good news. May the words of Isaiah 52, 7 be said of us, as many come to Jesus as a result of Christ sending us to proclaim the gospel. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. And finally, knowing that we are sent ought to change the way we seek our Lord. Right? The way we seek our Lord. The way we see the lost changes. The way we spend our lives changes. And the way we seek our Lord changes. Right? Our entire relationship with God changes when we know that he has a purpose for us to fulfill. Right? Rather than standing idly by like a passenger waiting for their flight to take them away, seeking only comfort until boarding time, knowing that we have a task to perform, a purpose to achieve, ought to change what it is we're seeking and what it is we ask of God. Right? If, if our prayer lives merely consist of requests for comfort, that we would be happy and healthy for the days that we're here, we are missing the point. We're missing the truth that we have been sent. But if it is true that Christ has sent us to carry on his mission. Our prayers should be centered around the hearts of others. That, that God would work 
that our friends and neighbors would come to know him, that God would transform lives, cities, and nations, that God would use us to this end and that he would give us the strength to accomplish whatever he has for us, no matter what the cost, because that is the purpose for which we have been sent. It's the purpose for which we are here. What we seek from God changes when we know that the days we have been given are intentional and purposeful. Church, we should be on our knees pleading that God would save more humans rather than focusing on our own comfort while we apathetically watch the world burn. Church, we are not simply in the world. We have been sent into it. And that is an important distinction to make with eternal consequences. So Christians are sent into the world, but are set apart from the world. Christians are sent into the world, but are set apart from the world. The second truth of our reality is that we are set apart. Yes, our mission is here. And yes, we ought to have a passion for the people Christ created and loved, but we do not identify with the world. Right? We live lives that are set apart from what the world would ask us to give ourselves to. Back to our teacher illustration. A good teacher knows that their purpose is to serve and educate the children in their care. But they also know that they are not one of the students. That their task is not to blend in, to embrace student culture, to act as their pupils, or to find worth in what their kids think about them. Church, while our mission is here, and we do belong here until Christ brings us home, we are called to be set apart. Which brings us all the way back to our starting point in the first John text. The world is not of God. It's precisely the reason we have been sent to it. Because it needs saving. And while we are on mission, we must be careful not to be conformed to the ways and the values of the world. Because if we do, we are of no help. And our ability to bring light into the darkness is lost as our light is dimmed or even extinguished itself. Perhaps the best illustration of being sent into the world but being set apart from it came from 19th century theologian D.L. Moody, who likened a Christian in the world to a boat in the water. Listen to what he says. Christians should live in the world, but not be filled with it. A ship lives in the water, but if the water gets into the ship, she goes to the bottom. So Christians may live in the world, but if the world gets into them, they sink. What an incredible analogy. Think about it. A boat lives in the water. The boat is actually designed, meant for the water, to float on the water, to be in the water, to be surrounded by the water. But the problem occurs when the water enters into the boat. 
When we let culture's ungodly morals, values, attitudes, and behaviors infiltrate our lives, causing our faith to capsize and immerse us completely. The idea, the hope, the calling, in short, is that the world should be filled with Christians, but Christians should not be filled with the world. Hey, let me say that again. The world should be filled with Christians, but Christians should not be filled with the world. Which I think begs a, a brief time of self-reflection for all of us to determine to what extent there may be water in the boat. That we may be compromised by the world we have been called into. So in the spirit of 1 John 4, 1, where we started this morning, which said to test the spirits to see whether they are from God, I think a quick test is in order for us to reflect on the nature of our set-apartedness from the world. So I want to ask us just five simple questions that perhaps we need to carry with us this week and ponder and honestly reflect on to see what, to what extent we have become of the world. The first question is the question of allegiance. Question of allegiance. Who do I align myself with? If, if I'm forced to choose between what the world says and what God says, which side am I most likely to fight for? Which side do I hope wins out? Which truth am I most likely to side with? Do I spend my time justifying my behavior or thoughts based on the fact that it's all right or permissible in the eyes of the world? Or do I align myself with biblical truth? Where does my allegiance lie? Which brings us to our second question really nicely, which is a question of authority. A question of authority. Who or what do I grant authority to in my life? Right? What are the loudest voices in my life? Do I let the Bible speak to me as the very words of God, letting cultural ideas run through the sift of Scripture before I accept them? Or do I run the truth of Scripture through my cultural lenses or through my experience to determine its validity? A little while back, I heard a Christian friend of mine reinterpreting a text of scripture based on something that they heard on a re reality TV show. Reality TV show, right? Besides the fact that what was said was totally bogus, it showed that the scriptures were secondary in my friend's life, that the TV show had more say in their lives than the actual text of scripture, even when it was regarding the scriptures themselves, let alone any other area of life. And I know that they're not alone in this. I see so many posts on social media that are just not biblically true, but because they're accompanied by a cute photo or are written in a clever manner, Christians repost them for all of their friends to see without seeing if they hold up biblically. Right? The Apostle Paul warns us of this, calling those of us who fall prey infants. Right? They're infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Right? 
As our text in 1 John said today in verse 5 and 6, the world listens to the world and the godly listen to which is of God. May we, church, have ears to hear and discernment to recognize that which is of God and that which is not. The third question we need to ask ourselves is about our pursuits. What am I pursuing? Am I chasing what the world values? Success, financial security, comfort, or am I chasing what God values? Right? When I survey my life, am I more accurately defined by the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 or by the things that the world would hashtag as blessed? What am I spending my life on? My time, my money, my thoughts? That's a really hard question, but it's a pretty good tell. Next is the question of audience. Audience. Who am I living for? Or who am I hoping to impress? Whose approval is most important in my life? Am I making decisions based on the fact that God sees and knows what I do and I want him to be honored and glorified in all I do? Or am I making decisions based on what those around me will think? Am I living for God's approval or for the approval of man? Now this one in particular has been a difficult one for the North American church lately with churches and pastors emphasizing the need to be accepted by culture, to be labeled as cool, fashionable, or trendy at the expense of being faithful to the scriptures, right? In the name of cultural relevance, many pastors in North America have the biggest social media followings, wear the trendiest and most expensive clothes, hang out with the biggest celebrities, all the while watering down the gospel, not standing for biblical truths for fear that their followings would decrease. But unfortunately, as their followings increase, so does their need for approval. They're, they're selling out to culture and their inability to live lives that exemplify the selfless, humble, unpopular life of Jesus, the one they're claiming to represent. And in turn, our world, when our churches act this way, our world isn't given a taste of Jesus. It's given just another taste of what they're already eating. And this just isn't just limited to churches. It isn't just limited to pastors. If your audience is your followers, your boss, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, and not Christ, there may be some water in your boat. The final question for us to self-reflect on is the question of hope. What is it that we put our hope in? We talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago. If you are wrecked when your team loses a game, you may be more invested in the world than you thought. If you are devastated by a political outcome, you may see this world more as a home than a mission field. If you are outraged when something is an inconvenience to you, stands in your way or goes against what you had hoped, perhaps it's time to rethink why we are here. Church, if our hope is truly in Christ, 
that what we see in front of us is not all there is, then we ought not to be so invested in what happens here as it pertains to us. We should be more fixed on how we can bring the light of the gospel into the places we have been sent, regardless of how comfortable we are. Because we are not the consumers of this world. Can I say that again? We are not the consumers in this world. When I was younger, I had the privilege, the privilege of working as a server in a couple of restaurants. And since then, I've had the privilege of eating in many more. And what I can tell you from my experience is that there's a significant difference between working in a restaurant and eating in a restaurant. Right? The, the goal, the purpose, the posture, the attitude are different. When I eat in a restaurant, my goal is to consume, to be fed, to be served, and to be comfortable while doing so. While the goal of working in a restaurant is to work, to, to serve, to accomplish the task I've been hired to do. And when I'm on the clock, it's not about me consuming it's not about my comfort. It's not about me being served. In short, I am not the consumer. Church, we need to understand that in this world, we are not the consumer. We are not here for ourselves. Rather, we are on the clock, sent by God himself, commissioned by Jesus Christ to work for his kingdom's sake, not for ours. So I say it again, the adjusted expression we need to remind ourselves of daily. Christians are sent into the world, but are set apart from the world. That is what Jesus calls us to. As A.C. Sproul said, a Christian doesn't reach maturity until he re-enters the world and embraces the world again, not in its worldliness and ungodly patterns, but as the theater and the arena of God's redemption. That's what Jesus did. He went into the world in order to save the world. This world is the world that God has committed himself to renew and redeem, and we are to participate in that with him. What a task. What a calling. May the God of everything, including this world, help us to live this out, to navigate this tension for his glory and for his name's sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we even thank you for the parts of scripture that, that provide attention for us. The parts of scripture that make us ask, how do I do both of these things? The parts of scripture that force us to dig deeper and to read the actual words. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand this reality. 
God, that you have set us apart. But you've set us apart for a purpose, for a mission. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to walk within that tension as you show us, as you guide us, as you lead us, that we would be people who are sent into the world and know it, but are set apart from the world because of what you have done for us. God, we love you, but we can't do this alone. We pray that your spirit would fill us and teach us how to live in this way. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.